You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Linda Cohen-Leugman back to the show. She has a brand new book that's out today. Today is release day for The Matchmaker's Gift. What a fantastic book, Linda. Um, I, I loved it so much. I know everyone else is to uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad. Thank you for saying that about the book. And thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be back. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, Linda, you know, from when we chatted uh, last time, it was about three years ago. And little did any of us know that the following year, um, you know, we would have a, a worldwide pandemic that we deal with. Um, and you know, it's it's been interesting to hear how uh, that time has affected creative people and writers specifically, um, because, you know, most writers, we spend a good bit of our time uh, kind of alone in our writing office, you know, through a lot of the, um, the the journey of what we do. But there's something different that happens when you know that the rest of the world is is locked down at home with you. And, you know, that can that can have, you know, detrimental, uh, you know, things happen to your mental state. Uh, how, how did it, uh, how did you and your family fare first off and, and how did this time affect you as a creative person? So I feel really lucky and I'm just going to preface by saying my dog is here with me for those listening. <laughs> Here's some little snorty noises. That's my dog. Um, I swear it's not me. Um, so I was, felt, feel very lucky. Um, with how I got through the pandemic creatively and actually the matchmaker's gift was written entirely during the pandemic. And I don't know if I would have written it. I probably wouldn't have written it had it not been for the pandemic. And what happened was in March of 2020, I got a call from my daughter on a Tuesday saying she had to be leave school, leave her dorm by Sunday. Um, she mm. college at the time. And she brought, um, she came home, she brought all her stuff home. And her roommate came home with her, which was really a blessing in so many ways because, you know, they missed out on half of their junior year and pretty much their whole senior year. But um, they, you know, they had each other. So it was still, it felt a, at least a little bit more college to have, you know, one buddy with you. Right. Um, so, but at that time, um, it was really my daughter's roommate, Adele, who told me about her grandmother, who had been a matchmaker. Um in Brooklyn in the 1970s. And that was how I started to get the idea for this story. And I, it's not, you know, it's very unlike my other stories. And I'm, I have to say it's, it's my most joyful book so far. And it's just very interesting to me that I wrote my most joyful book during this really like dark time in our collective history, you know, for all of us. So that's, you know, what happened. Yeah. Wow. Um, Linda, there's a question that I've been asking writers lately, and I'd love to get your take on it. Um, if uh, is there a piece of writing advice that you have gotten 
uh, along your writing career somewhere that maybe it was such a great piece of writing advice that it sticks with you, or maybe it's so terrible um, that you look back and you laugh and think, oh, I'm so glad I didn't take that. Um, is, or maybe there's yeah. one of each. I mean, something that I really take to heart um, is when I was taking um, the class that I took when I wrote my first book. I wrote my first book while I was taking the class at Sarah Lawrence over five years of taking this class, which was really more like a workshop. And the the professor who led it um, said the difference between people who are published writers and people who are not is that the published writers just keep writing. And that's really the advice that has stuck with me the most is you, you just have to keep writing. There's a lot of rejection in this business. There's a lot of heartache, even after you have books. You know, I wrote my first two books and I wrote a third book before The Matchmaker's Gift. And it just wasn't a book that was right. You know, my agent was trying to sell it right at the beginning of the pandemic and it wasn't, you know, it didn't have any bite. And so that was, you know, two years of work that that didn't lead to anything. But I have to believe that it aired me for the next book, you know, and, and you just have to keep going. The writer's career is not a straight path. It's not linear. It's up and down all the time. And it's just nothing that we can predict. So I think we have to really keep sitting in the chair, keep sitting at the computer, keep typing away on the keyboard. And that's all we can do. Successful people just don't give up. That you, you can't, you can't give up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not, not so much successful people don't give up, but just that if you want to keep, if you want this to be your life, you, you have to keep going. You have to. Right. You know, there's that that adage that um, uh, that Ray Bradbury used to uh, say about writing short stories specifically. He would tell people to uh, to write a new story each week because at the end of a year, surely you can't write 50 bad stories. You know, (laughs) you know what he's he's talking specifically about short stories. But I I think the, the concept is true is. You, you know, the more you work at something, the the better you'll be at it. I do think, I mean, I feel like so many writers I know, we've all, we're all getting better. You know, like we're all just owning our craft. We're all learning from doing. From right. As much as we can read, writing as much as we can write and kind of, just improving. I mean, I feel I feel like this book is my best book. Um, I feel like so many of my friends just keep getting better and better at their writing. You know, it's just practice doesn't make perfect, but you have to practice. You know, practicing does make you better. So you you talked about the uh, the story that your daughter's friend told you about her family connection and. Uh, this this matchmaking were were you familiar with the the concept of of matchmaking and um I know when uh the first time that I really realized that this was a thing um was the the last season of miss Maisel I, I think it was where where midge's mom you know is is a matchmaker and and falls into this whole kind of underground society of matchmakers. It was, it was really funny. Um, that was a but, really, yeah, it was a great storyline. So yeah, that was, it was so funny because I had written my, my book was all done, you know, and then that, that popped up. So what happened was, so 
So yes and no. So I think when we say the word matchmaker, everybody, most people at least, think of like Fiddler on the Roof. And you think of that song, Matchmaker, Matchmaker, and you think of the character, Yenta, and you think that that's what it is. Um, And what happened with me was, so, so, you know, I started to, my daughter came home, brought her roommate home. We were watching, one of the things we were binge watching at that time during the pandemic was Indian Matchmaking, which was a series on Netflix, which was a great series if you have any interest in it, um, which, you know, showed a traditional matchmaker in a different culture. And the, after that, that was when my daughter's roommate said, you know, my grandmother used to be an Orthodox Jewish matchmaker. And she showed me this article from the New York Times that had her grandmother in it. Um, and that was when I started to think about it. But then I started to do my research because after I decided, okay, this is the next book I'm going to write. Um, it was a funny thing because I'm not a romance writer. And when you think of a matchmaker, when I say that word, you think immediately of romance and love. That's their business, right? Right. I'm not that kind of writer. I'm a historical fiction writer. So I had to do my historical research and try to figure out what time period I was going to set this book in and what the history of matchmaking in the Jewish community was. So the first thing um, that I found was this piece on the museum at Eldridge's website called Love on the Lower East Side. And in that um, little blurb on their website, because remember it was the pandemic, I couldn't go anywhere to do my research. I couldn't go, right. to, couldn't go to the Lower East Side. So on, on that website, it, the, the little exhibit, virtual exhibit talked about a wedding on the Lower East Side in 1909. That was the wedding of the daughter of the quote unquote pickle millionaire. Um, it was this woman and she, Ethel Karp, the daughter of a Romanian immigrant who had a big pickle business on the Lower East Side, apparently, and farms on Long Island. And this wedding, this huge New York Times article about it, 2,000 people were invited, the police were on hand, and there was this amazing line um, that said, the, the smell, the scent of roses and orange blossoms mingled with this, the odors of pickled herring and pickles. And so I said, okay, this is my time period, the 1910s, the 1920s. This is the time period I want to write about. Let me learn more about matchmaking then. Because I could have written about the 1950s, right? Like Mrs. Mays, like everybody loves the 1950s in the story. Right. And something that would have been really appealing to people. But when I read that line about that wedding and I started digging deeper, I found another piece in the New York Times from 1910 that said at that time in New York, there were over 5,000 professional matchmakers and the bulk of them were men. And it was a man, it was a bit, you know, it was a serious business and people preferred to do business with men and the men were the ones running the show. And that gave me a whole other idea. And immediately then the conflict for my main character, for one of my main characters, Sarah, starts taking shape in my mind because here is this woman, I'm going to write about a female matchmaker, but they're all men then, or not all, but the bulk of them. Are men. Yeah. There were these cartoons in the in the Yiddish daily um, newspapers at the time called Gim- the Gimple Baelish car- cartoons. And he was like this cartoon matchmaker. And, you know, the cartoons showed all of his problems trying to make matches and all of the things that he faced. And he was this guy with this top hat and this vest and a big, long beard. And he looked like a character, you know, from Schtissel, like that TV show that everybody loved, right? Um, and that was the typical matchmaker at that time in New York. So what does it look like then if you have a female matchmaker up against all these men who are 
you know, this is their livelihood. They don't want her getting in the way. They don't appreciate the fact that she has this sort of preternatural gift for making love matches. They don't like love matches generally. They're in it for the commission and they don't want right. to. So that's what started to take shape. And that's how the story sort of came to be. Is um, the, the love matches. Uh, do you think that the... Um the the idea was that a, a true love match would take too long. The, the business transaction should should be quick, and uh, you know these um, these people should connect easier, and and it should all be about um, you know the what each family can bring to the other family. I'm not sure about the speed of it, though that probably was a factor in some ways because you didn't want like a young woman to become an old maid, right? Right. Um, would become an old maid pretty young, <laughs> like, you know, 20, 19, whatever it would be. Um, so there was something to do with that. But I think it was more the other factor that you mentioned, just let you want to make a, an objectively advantageous match, you know, based on your family and your family experience, you know, our, your family, your monetary situation, you know, just d- d- does everything do the two families match well? I think it was also just more about the families than the young people themselves who are getting married. Um, but that's not how Sarah in my story sees it. <laughs> so the, in the matchmaker's gift, um, well, first off, the, the title of the book is uh, uh, kind of serves multiple purposes. Um, did did the Did the title of the book come to you early on or... Was this, you know, something that that happened after the book and uh, then the title comes naturally? Um, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do are you the kind of writer who thinks of a title and then the story kind of encompasses that or does it come to you as the story evolves? So sometimes I am certainly with the two family house, um, although I didn't think that that would be the title. That was my working title for that story because that was all I could think of. It was like, well, it takes place in a two-family house. And then actually before I sent it to my agent, um, the woman who became my agent, when she said, send me the full manuscript, I was trying to think of like a a fancier title. You know, like the two-family house sounded so plain and I wanted something really like fancy and and literary. And, you know, I didn't come up with anything good. And she she hated what I sent her. but with the matchmaker's gift, it was more the, it was, it was the opposite. You know, I had this idea. I was working on another story at the time and I had this idea based on, you know, what was going on in my house and just, the, just, you know, the, the story that, that my daughter's um, friend told me. Um, it wasn't really a story. It was just that he just said, my grandmother was a matchmaker. That was really it. Um, but I, in the article that she showed me, there was reference to another matchmaker and there was reference in the article to the matchmaker's file cabinets that held records of all of the matches. And that made, remember that, that kid story, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So that made me kind of think of that. And I thought, okay, what if there was a story called from the mixed up files of Mrs. Like era, you know, like what if that was the title? And I sort of told that to my agent. And she wasn't so crazy about that because she thought it would sound like another kid's book, you know, like it wouldn't sound like an adult book. But she loved the idea of a matchmaker story. And then, you know, you when you try to 
kind of give your editor a synopsis of a book. You know, you write down, it's, it's a weird thing to do because you're writing about a story that doesn't exist yet and you don't really even know what you're doing yet. You know, like you're, I was still trying to pick the time period at the point when I was writing the synopsis for this story and I really didn't know what it was going to look like. Um, and my editor thought that it might be called the Matchmaker's Library. And so I sort of changed the style idea, which didn't really go well with the matchmaker, right? Now, um, to this idea of a journal, because that would fit better in a library. And then as when I handed in the first part of the book, or maybe when I handed it, I don't remember, but at some point that they decided the matchmaker's gift really was like a much better idea. Because the library, it didn't really fit. Um, you know, titles are really important for yeah. just getting people's attention. And so putting Matchmaker in the title was kind of a given. It was, it was going to be in the title because people like those kinds of stories. You know, if you're looking for that, you're going to light up when you see that word Matchmaker. Um, but the Matchmaker's Gift, I think, is a very special title. It just, it's twinkly. You know, there's like yeah. a twinkle to it. And that makes me really happy because they do have <laughs> Both the characters, so I'm really glad that they veered away from library to gift. That that just like lightened my whole, like it just I don't know. There's a lightness to it that that yeah. Nice. There's uh, I I love the the uh the kind of framing story that you came up with uh in this because the 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 impetus obviously was uh like you said the you know your your daughter's friend telling you about. Her grandmother that was a, a matchmaker, and you start thinking about this historical setting. Um, but the book actually is a modern story, also. Um, yeah. Tell me about the decision to uh, to kind of come up with this story that frames the other story, and how you contrast and compare, um, you know, life in the early twentieth century with modern life, and and you know, kind of our. Uh, the way we think about relationships and matchmaking and, and all of that in a modern context. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a dual timeline story. So there's Sarah in the, you know, the turn of the century matchmaker, and then there's her granddaughter, Abby. And once I decided on Sarah's timeline, Abby's timeline naturally just, you know, follows from that because your granddaughter, right? So I can't, you know, you're limited. Um, so her timeline is in 1994. And Abby is actually pretty much my age. Um, so I, Abby is a young divorce lawyer in 1994. And I, which was, is hilarious, by the way. Yeah, that, that I was, I was actually, you know how you get good ideas, like in the shower. I had that idea <laughs> in the shower. That was like one of my good shower ideas that she would be a divorce lawyer. Um, and then like, I was so happy. I was like washing my hair and like jumped out of the shower, like screaming to my husband, she's going to be a divorce lawyer. <laughs> like, isn't that perfect? And he's like, what are you talking about? It's like, and your husband's like, wait, what? <laughs> She's going to be a divorce. Um, yeah. So I was a lawyer. I was a trust and estates lawyer, which, so trust and estates lawyers don't work on divorces, but you sometimes work on prenuptial agreements. So I right. did work on prenuptial agreements. And one of the ones I worked on, like inspired um, Victor and Nicole a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I, so I knew my two timelines. And I knew that Abby was going to have to wrestle with this grief of her grandmother. So when the story opens, Abby's grandmother has passed away and her grandmother leaves her these journals. 
And that's a trope that is really used a lot and sometimes overused. And I kind of was like, okay, that to be really true. I don't want this to be one of those stories where, you know, the granddaughter finds the letter and then it leads to this mystery. And so I tried not to write it that way. It's very, I wrote the book in the order that you read it. So it wasn't like I wrote all of Sarah's story and then all of Abby's story. They really go back and forth. They're really intertwined. They're very connected. Um, and one of the things that's made me happiest in reading the reviews is that people say, they like them both equally because, you know, a lot of times with dual timeline stories, you really prefer one timeline to another and you feel like you're kind of like, oh, here we are back at this, you know, there's the A story and the B story, right? Like the, like a 45 record, you know, the A side and the B side. Um, so I tried to make them both A sides and tried to really intertwine them. So it's just a back and forth where basically Abby has heard all of these stories of her grandmothers um, and she doesn't really... Not that she doesn't believe that they happened, but she kind of thinks they were all really embellished and they just like, they just sounded fairy taleish to her. You know, she didn't really truly understand that these were real people that her grandmother would kind of tell these little stories about and these recollections that she would have. Um, and then she, as she goes through these journals, she begins to understand that it was all real, you know, that, that all of these things really happened and that maybe she too is blessed or cursed, depending on, you know, how you think of it with this gift. Um, be able to see who people are meant for, who people, which people should really be together. And it gets in the way of her career. You know, it really becomes very problematic for her because that's not what she's supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Abby is uh, looking back over the journals, and, and like you said, she begins by kind of not believing any of this is real and, and not taking it seriously. And, and then she starts realizing that that these are are real people and th these are real struggles that people were going through and 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 you know connections being made and and it becomes very real uh to her there there's uh there is a um a temptation that when you're writing the modern side of a story like this that when you look back on the historical setting to um reduce it to um, kind of the the backward way that that people lived, and you know, and and to to kind of look down on uh his historical situations, and and you don't do that in in this book. Um, there's uh the the historical setting is is preserved in its um in its uniqueness in its uh seriousness of you know, you you don't dismiss it uh because it's they live differently than we do now um can, can you talk about just looking at these two different time periods and allowing people to be who they were without judgment of our our modern way of thinking if that makes sense at all yeah, no, it does. no thank you well i'm glad that you felt that way i think some of that result comes from the fact that the historical timeline is really my sweet spot for writing you know that's so I could have written just Sarah's story. In fact, there was a point where I was writing it where I just wanted to just write Sarah's story and not write Abby's story at all because I've, I've never written that modern of a timeline. Even though it's 1994 and it's not today, so it's technically historical fiction, which is sad like to think that 1994 is historical, but it is. Um, that's the year my wife and I got married. And that's... Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got married in 95. I got married <laughs> in 95, so same thing. 
Um, so I was really nervous about writing the 1994 timeline. And the, I was never nervous about writing the turn of the century timeline. That's where I felt at ease. And what was really, and Sarah's story came together in my mind long before Abby's story. I always knew what Sarah's arc would be. And that's, that's I think, why you sense the seriousness. She has a full storyline herself. So it was right. writing two books in a way, two short books. And there are an equal number of pages for each. A lot of times when you have that, you know, the granddaughter, grandmother thing or the older person, you know, it's, there's just these short flashbacks to the older time period. And they're real, like you said, they're dismissive. They're short. They're, they, they're just to kind of draw a memory up, you know, mm-hmm. that's not how it is in this book. Sarah's, Sarah's arc is fully formed and she has her whole own story and she goes up against the male matchmakers in the community and they bring her to the rabbinical court and there's a whole court scene and she is fighting to earn the place that she deserves in that professional community, which is not so different, you know, from what women still face today. You know, it's, there's a lot of relevancy um, to her story. So, but I think that's why it feels that way when you read it, or I hope that's why, just because like, I love writing the historical part. So um, I wasn't trying to just like slap that and get back to the modern story at all. As a writer, uh, are you a, a planner or are you a pantser? Do you, do you plan out what you're uh, going to write ahead of time or do you write by the seat of your pants? So I, I plan. I mean, this story, I don't really sit down and write until they have a lot of things in my head. But it's not I don't outline necessarily. It's not that I know every twist and turn the plot is going to take, but I need to really know who my characters are before I write. So I need to spend a lot of time with them in my head, kind of. And I have in my head what I want to happen. I actually start outlining more as the story goes along. So it's sort of when I start, I know, I'm not quite entirely sure how it's going to, I I have like my moments where I know where I want it to get get to, but I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there. And then when I'm about a third of the way done, I outline um, I figure out what is going to happen for the rest of the two thirds. And when I'm two thirds of the way done, then I get really specific because once I'm two thirds of the way there, then I know all the little pieces that have to fall into place to get me to the ending that I know that I want. So then I start, so I sort of start, I sort of outline more as I go along. With a book like this, that is equal parts um, flashback and modern story. Um, do you plan those two separately or do you write um, a, uh, a a modern or, or the 1994 piece and then the uh, the uh, the flashback piece? Uh, do you kind of go back and forth in the writing or do you write all of one thread and then all of the second thread and then figure out how to piece them together? No, I wrote it exactly in the order that you read it. OK. And, yeah. And it was. um because that's the only way to make really natural connections for me. You know, like I would think I would be writing, especially in the beginning, I was writing and I was like, okay, well, you know, this whole idea of a pickle cane wedding and she's going to tell the girl about that. And like, what would be a good thing to play off of that? What would be a good connect? And then I think, thought, oh gosh, you know what? Like he's the pickle 
king. We're going to call him the pickle king. And like, that was when Diana and Charles got married. Like the girls, they'll be watching that and they'll be seeing the wedding of a prince and a princess. And then she's going to say that she was at the wedding of a king, you know, the, or the wedding of the daughter of a king. She was the pickle, he was the pickle king. And so like, so I, I'm writing, I'm thinking of those connections and then I'm writing them out. And that is, was the only way for me to make it feel authentic, you know, to make it feel like the layers all fit neatly together. And it wasn't just like, oh, she's going to find a letter with, you know, just this random thing that, that doesn't connect. I wanted the connections to be tight that way. Um, and even like I, I found out about this, this thing on the Lower East Side, the Knish War of 1916, when it was a price war, you know, these two competing Knish shops were real. It was a real thing. You know, one opens and then across the street, the other one opens and one charges five cents for a Knish. And then the other guy says four cents. And they're just like, this whole thing happened. And when I read about that, immediately I thought of like, okay, this is a great Romeo and Juliet story. Like, this is such a great Romeo. Like, what if the daughter of one, it's like the Capulets and the Montagues. Like there's one, you know, the daughter of one and the son of the other, Knish Empire, and they want a match. Um, and, but then, okay, how am I going to relate that story to the more modern timeline? And then I thought, okay, well, they'll go to Shakespeare in the park in the city. Like in 1994, they can go to Shakespeare in the park. And so it was kind of like I would think of something or I would find out about, out about a great historical tidbit. And then I would try to find a way to bring it into the more modern timeline also and make it relevant. So that was sort of my, the way my mind was bouncing back and forth. You mentioned earlier that that historical fiction is really your sweet spot as a writer. Um, historical fiction, especially early 20th century historical fiction, is really having a heyday in, in publishing right now. Um, you know, a, a lot of our most popular books right now are are based in that time period. Um, what do you think it is that that uh, resonates so deeply with readers, uh, these stories that are, you know, a hundred years uh, ago in, in setting? And, and why, why do you think we're latching on to stories like that, that we are? I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of comfort in the past. I think especially now everything is so confusing. <laughs> um, the world is a very confusing place. I think like even with the death of Queen Elizabeth, right? You know, right. saying it's the end of an era and people seek comfort and security in the past. It seems, even though it wasn't, it always seems like everything was simpler back then. It always seems like everything was black and white. You know, people ask that a lot about World War II books. Why do people love to read about World War II? Yeah. Or two. And a lot of people have said be, it's because there was such a clear, you know, good guys, bad guys. It wasn't the way that it is now where nobody can figure it out anymore. And it's so many shades of gray. Um, and I do think there's some truth to that. And the earlier, you know, earlier time periods as well in the 1910s and 1920s, I think, you know, we, we romanticize those earlier times. Even though, of course, there were terrible things going on then and complicated things going on then, and it wasn't all the way we like to think about it, we romanticize it. Sure, sure. The Matchmaker's Gift is uh, available everywhere now. You can grab it in Kindle edition or uh, the hardcover. We're going to have links to it in the show notes where you can uh, grab those from Amazon or go visit your local bookstore. 
also audiobook. Uh, yeah. Linda, have you had the opportunity to listen to any of the audiobook yet? I listened to just a tiny smidge, but I'm really excited because we have two narrators. So we have a separate person for the Sarah story and a separate person for the Abby story. And the, the bits that I listened to sounded great. So I'm really excited to listen to that. Um, I think I need to get a little bit further away from the book myself before I <laughs> listen to it because I'm sort of overloaded on the story um, myself because I, you know, like that's all I've been thinking about. So, um, but I'm definitely going to listen to it and I'm, I'm very excited about the two. I love it. Uh, what are you working on these days? Has a new story captured you? Yeah, I'm working on, you know, I love writing a little bit of magic into this story in the historical context. So um, I'm working on another story like that. And the next one is inspired by my husband's great grandmother, who actually graduated from pharmacy school in 1921, um, which was pretty unusual for a woman then. And a pharmacy, you know, is a great setting because the pharmacist back then was like, you know, the priest, bartender, the therapist, like, all rolled into one. You knew everybody's secrets and they came to you with all their problems and their, you know, crazy stuff. So, um, so it's set in an old time pharmacy in Brooklyn. It's a, you know, a young girl whose father's a pharmacist, but she takes over his store and she's caught between her father's um, real faith in like straight, pure scientific medicine and then her great aunt's like old world remedies like the stuff that she's making in the kitchen, you know, for people when, when the, when the aspirin doesn't work, she has other ideas of what might work. Um, and there's, there's a, a love potion that goes very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, Linda, if folks are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, uh, is there a place online where they can connect with you? Sure. Yeah. I am on all the things I'm, on Instagram at L. Loigman, and I'm on Facebook um, at Linda Cohen Loigman author, and I'm on Twitter also at um, Linda C. Loigman. So just Loigman is a really like unusual name. If you put Loigman in there, you'll find me. L O I G M A N. You're you're sure to find me. <laughs> Excellent. We'll uh, link all that up in the show notes as well to make it easy for folks to find you. Uh, Linda, the Matchmaker's Gift, a phenomenal book. I love it recommending it to everyone. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to catch up with you.